Well, good morning, everyone. So we're going to be continuing the series uh, in Acts 8 through 12, which after this will be two more lessons. So one more lesson at the end of chapter 11 with Antioch and then on Peter as he's freed from jail uh, in chapter 12. But uh, we've titled this Portraits of Jesus' Dominion because of uh, this section of Acts with the gospel spreading throughout the Samaritan regions uh, before it spreads to the ends of the earth with uh, Paul's preaching trips after chapter 13. We see a lot of names and very intimate, very personal examples. Uh, we saw in chapter 8, Simon in Samaria focused on, and then the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch after that in chapter 8. Then in chapter 9, we get Saul and the conversion of Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. And then we have some intimate, some very personal examples of healing, where Peter first heals Aeneas of paralysis and then uh, Tabitha of death at the end of chapter 9. And so in chapter 10, we're going to see Cornelius, and then intimately we'll see the church in Antioch and the people who are there at the end of chapter 11. And then again, finally, we'll see uh, Peter uh, freed from jail as Herod was looking to put him to death. So we're going to be looking at Cornelius's conversion. And uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of this event. Uh, it's one of the longest conversion accounts in the book of Acts. Um, I didn't like go and like count the words. So like something I'll do sometimes is I'll look at like the space it takes up on my page and kind of see maybe how that compares to other things. And that sometimes kind of clues you in and like how important something is just because of how much text is focused on it particularly. So to my like very loose like looking at page count, uh, Acts 10 and the conversion of Cornelius is actually longer than the conversion account of Acts chapter 2 when the church began. And both of these are very important because Acts chapter 2 is obviously where everything culminated together in God's plan and the church has begun for the first time and really the, the church age begins. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is opened. Uh, but up until this point, everybody converted is on some level Jewish. Either they're a proselyte converted to becoming Jewish and they've been circumcised or they're a Samaritan, which has its roots in Judaism and being a Jew to some level. But there have not been any Gentile converts yet. I think the reason why Acts chapter 10 is focused on in such detail and given so much priority in the book of Acts, so much space and text dedicated to it, because this conversion is on, I think, a very important level, equal in importance to what happened in Acts chapter 2. We see a lot of parallels between Acts 10 and Acts 2, but we would not, I think, be here today if it weren't for the fact that God did open the gates of his kingdom to the Gentiles. Uh, you know, some of us, you know, if we used like, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called, it's a thing where like you look at your lineage with like your biological data or whatever, uh, you might find that like maybe you're one one hundredth on some level from a Jewish descent, I don't know. But that doesn't make someone Jewish in the way that Jews were back here, uh, much more religiously, much more prominently. So we're all, we're all Gentiles here, right? And so really we owe our ability to be in God's kingdom because God opened the gates of his kingdom here originally to Cornelius. Now, if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, I want you to look at where Cornelius is at. This is one of those things where unless you like know some Bible geography, there's some really important, really cool things here that are easy to miss. Uh, Cornelius was in Caesarea. Uh, I want you to notice on a map there, Caesarea is in northwest Samaria. Look northeast of that and the region that's just northeast of Caesarea, where Jesus performed the majority of his ministry. 
where we read in our scripture reading, look at verse 37 of chapter 10. You yourselves know the things which take place through all Judea. So Peter's not talking to someone who's never heard about Jesus before. And to this Gentile, it's like this whole gospel thing, this whole God thing is an entirely new concept. That's, that's actually not the case. Uh, Cornelius was in a location where he would have been heavily exposed to the things that Jesus had either done by consequence of region or even knowing people, interacting with people who had also at the same time interacted with Jesus despite being a Gentile. In fact, you may remember, and I don't think this was Cornelius necessarily, but in Jesus's ministry early on, there was a centurion, for instance, who was also a Gentile who had a servant who was sick and he implored Jesus to come and heal his, his servant. So there were even centurions who on some level had direct interactions with Jesus who were also Gentiles. Another cool thing about this, go back to chapter 8 really quick, uh, chapter 8, verse 40. So you remember Philip, who was a very busy evangelist, somebody who had the ability to perform very evident miracles. Wherever Philip went, he was preaching the gospel. Notice where Philip ended up again. Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he kept on preaching to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So this is also not Caesarea's first exposure to the gospel. I imagine some time has passed between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 10. So I imagine, again, Cornelius is being heavily exposed to the presence of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel. Now, I want us to put ourselves in Cornelius' shoes for a moment, and we'll talk a little more specifically here in just a minute about the kind of person Cornelius was. But again, put yourself in his shoes. This is where he was. These are the things happening all around him, things that have been happening all around him. You know, it'll mention he was a God-fearing man, that he prayed continuously and, and gave generously to the Jewish nation. Have you guys heard that term that goes around? I don't know if like this is popular anymore, but it kind of like had its phase where it was something I heard people saying all the time. Uh, FOMO. Have you ever like heard of someone having FOMO? So most of you know, uh, most of you are probably too old. Uh, so it's, it's the fear of missing out. Yes, Brandon, you're probably too old to know. Uh, Anna probably knows. Uh, Annie probably knows. Uh, but it's, it's a fear of missing out. And it's the idea of, you know, a person can have a lot of like sadness or anxiety because people they know are all going somewhere really fun or really cool and they're left out or they just weren't invited or they're sick and they can't go. And so there's this idea like something really fun is happening or something really fulfilling and you notice like I don't get to participate in this thing that I, I really want to be a part of. So you imagine as a Gentile, right, where you've developed faith in God, you believe in God, and you see the gospel spreading and how exciting this is and all these things happening in the Jewish nation. And for whatever reason, Cornelius is not a proselyte and he's not converted to Judaism at all. He's, he's a believer, but he is fully and completely a Gentile. And as much as you'll notice in verse uh, chapter 11, in verse 14, it's implied pretty clearly in the fact that he needed the gospel preached to him, but explicitly in chapter 11, verse 14, Cornelius was not saved. And so you imagine the, the prayers of Cornelius saying, but God, what about me? God, please notice me. Please let me be a part of this. And I think that's really hard for us to comprehend because of how available the gospel is to us. But you imagine, literally, the gospel is not available to Cornelius yet. No matter how exciting it is, no matter how encouraged he is by what's going on with the Jews, it's not for Cornelius yet, and he's on the outside looking in. So with that, let's think about how God puts the pieces together here to open the gates of the kingdom 
to the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius. So Peter's in Joppa. Uh, well, I guess I didn't really point that out. Peter's there in Joppa. This is all on the coast, southwest. Uh, Cornelius is going to send servants to Peter in Joppa, and Peter's going to travel north. Uh, if you notice verse uh, 30 of chapter 10, Cornelius will make it clear this is four days that elapsed between him sending for Peter and Peter coming. So that kind of accounts for the distance there. You'll notice they're nearby. They're not right next door to each other. So there's some time that's going to elapse here between these interactions. So again, chapter 10, Peter is in Joppa and he's going to be called on by Cornelius because Cornelius is going to see a vision where God tells him to send for him. So verses one through eight, let's start there. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. And a centurion means he was uh, a commander of the Roman military in charge of 100 people. Verse 2. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were of his personal attendants. And after, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So again, Cornelius is a devout man. He feared God with all his household, notice. And so he had obviously been influential on his household, servants, family, whatever, that really everyone within his household also was sharing this faith in God seemingly because of Cornelius. And he was generous to the Jews, prayed to God continually. continually. And yet, again, was he a saved person? And the fact that he wasn't saved, despite these good qualities, you know, these are all very good things. And, you know, you notice the angel tells him directly, like, hey, God's noticed these things. You know, so it's not that like, oh, you know, you're not saved. So all of this has been an abomination so far. So let's rectify that and let's make it noticeable by, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of this has been valuable. So does the fact that he's not saved invalidate any of these good things? Even though it doesn't save him. So there's value to these things he's doing pursuing God, but that value doesn't mean he's saved. As this goes on, I want you to think, what would invalidate everything that was going on so far? I think what does validate it is not only that Peter preaches to him and the dots are connected, but that he obeys the gospel when it's presented. What would invalidate this is after everything is said and done and preaches, Peter preaches the message to Cornelius. If Cornelius says, wait, No, that doesn't sound right. That's not what I want, and I'm not willing to do it. Then, would everything he'd be doing have any value at that point if he's not willing to obey the gospel? Listen, I study with a lot of people who are religiously, even like in Christianity, they're very zealous. Some people I meet and study with, they have a really rooted faith and a love for God. And they're not saved. And that's a topic we have to talk about. And if they're not willing to do what God says for salvation, if that's something they outright reject, then what value does it have that everything they've been doing for God has been leading them to that point? The value of what we do for God is allowing him to determine the terms. 
if while we've been developing faith and maturity in God and trying to follow him, we find out there's something critical that we have not yet done to resolve a problem in our relationship with God, when that's presented to us, what we do with that says a great deal about the reality of our attitude about God and the condition of our faith. So Cornelius sees this frightening vision. Every time people see angels in the Bible, it's not really like a lovey-dovey gentle thing, but it's usually pretty frightening. And so in verse 3 and 4, Cornelius is much alarmed seeing this angel, and he's told a message to send to Peter. Another side note here in the book of Acts, what we see consistently, just as a reminder, I've mentioned this in previous lessons, but it doesn't hurt to mention it again, that angels never do the teaching in the book of Acts. Angels help create opportunities for teaching, and they may help connect the teacher to a student, but angels in Acts never actually do the teaching. It was actually the same with the Apostle Paul when Jesus appeared to him directly. Jesus also did not teach Paul what he needed to do to be saved. Jesus said, go to Ananias, Ananias will teach you, he will tell you what to do. Suffice it to say, Peter then also receives a vision in 9 through 23a. So 23 is a weird verse in my Bible where in the beginning of 23, the first sentence um, really ends the thought, and then the second half of verse 23 begins a new section. So 9 through 23 with Peter's vision. On the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. This is about noon, by the way, the sixth hour. Um, it's the sixth hour from like 6 a.m., so again, about noon. Verse 11, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures in the earth and, and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them, accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. So ironically, you know, obviously, like, God's timing is always perfect. As Peter is hungry and going on the roof to seek God, God shows him a vision of what he says should be food when God is, again, seeing that Peter is hungry. And Peter went up on the roof to seek after God, and there God is, speaking a message to him. This is a very unusual vision. You know, so Peter sees this, like, blanket coming down, and I imagine, like, the four corners. You can't see, like, the tips, but you see this sheet coming down. And then all of a sudden, like, all of these animals and insects and birds and creatures come, like, slowly out of this sheet. And surprisingly, this voice, which would be God's voice, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And this defies some pretty strong religious convictions that Peter has. 
You remember in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus is contending with the Pharisees because they're upset that Jesus and the disciples did not wash their hands ceremonially before a meal, uh, Jesus kind of in the midst of that interaction, when he's talking about it's not what goes into um, the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out that defiles him, matters of the heart, it inserts a parenthetical, thus he pronounced all foods clean. I doubt Peter was ignorant of that. But again, where did this conviction come from? This came from the law of God. Leviticus 11, there was a religiously bound standard that for the Jewish people, there were only certain clean animals that they were allowed to eat. And I imagine Peter, as a Jew, had pretty well kept on with that conviction up to this point. Isn't it true that God challenges our convictions, period, and our expectations, but oftentimes things that we may be religiously accustomed to. Now, obviously for Peter, this was something that God had actually said that needed to change in this context. This was a law that was no longer religiously binding, and this was going to get in the way of Peter's ability to go to the Gentiles. But I find it to be continuously very true. Again, as I, I study with people who have a great religious zeal, that there comes a point where God has said something very clearly. And you may have some kind of preference or conviction that you've associated with God or maybe loosely associated with his word, or it may even be something from the Old Testament. For example, they used mechanical instruments in worship from the Old Testament. And that's oftentimes where someone goes to say, this is where my authority is for what we do using instruments, whatever. But what happens when God in the New Testament gives a command that contradicts that religious conviction you've held onto? What then? So I think, again, in principle, what Peter is being challenged with here, there's a commonality to that. And even beyond that, how God continuously, he challenges convictions we may personally hold with his instructions that help us connect more with people and broaden our relationships. We'll come back to that later. But I want you to think what this shows about what those laws were really about. For the Jewish nation, it seems really clear, especially when you look at verse 28, as Peter will tell them how unlawful it is for a Jew to eat with a Gentile, which in the old law, that's, that's never like explicitly stated in that way, but that seems like an implication of laws like the clean and unclean animal laws. Um, and so this, this law that I think was primarily to restrict the Jewish ability to have table fellowship with the Gentiles, God is ending the binding nature of that law so that Jewish, Jewish Christians can have the freedom to have table fellowship with the Gentiles. Lastly, was God giving Peter the easy answer, the spoon-fed answer to this? He says, arise, kill, and eat, but does God say why? And could God have just said, without a vision, without this like narrative or illustration, could God have just said, hey, there's some guys coming to your house. They're going to take you to Cornelius. He's a Gentile, by the way. And he's clean, and you can preach to him, and he can be saved now. The Gentiles can be saved, so just don't have any misgivings about this. Just preach the message to him. Could God have said that? And would that have been just fine for God to just speak that clearly? But is there something important about God challenging Peter, about him digging into his heart with this vision and illustration, and having Peter be, in verse 17, greatly perplexed. And then in verse 19, he's reflecting on the vision. So there's something important about Peter himself 
discovering the application, which he will continue to discover through this. So we'll come back to that as an application at the end of the lesson, that God doesn't just spoon-feed Peter the easy answer. And so Cornelius and Peter are, in a sense, both being challenged here in the way this is all playing out. So suffice it to say, Peter is then on his way to see Cornelius, and we'll read uh, the rest of 23 through verse 33 to start this next section. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. We'll learn that this is six brethren who accompany him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am just a man. As he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without, without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your, prayers, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at, your, at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I send for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So something very encouraging about this in verse 25 or rather, verse 24. Who all did Cornelius invite here to come to this? This is kind of something that's very encouraging about new Christians, is oftentimes they have a lot of people they know who either have not heard the gospel or have not heard it accurately, and so there are a lot of people close to them they can invite to hear it. But I want you to think about this. Would it be weird for you to invite your close friends to an opportunity to hear the gospel? Would that be strange? like really awkward? Or would that to them seem like that's like breaching the nature of your relationship with them to like insert that into the relationship? What I think is so encouraging about Cornelius and his character, it seems like everybody around him understood who he was, what was most important to him and what he was about. Not only that they knew that about him, but that drew them to want to share that with him. And so you notice back in chapter 10, verse 2, he already feared God with his whole household. And I think based on what we're reading about Cornelius, he initiated that with his household, teaching them and influencing them. And not only that, but his close friends and relatives, they're very interested in this opportunity, even though I'm sure they don't quite know exactly what's going to be taught to them yet, but that this is something related to Jesus and the gospel. And you notice with Peter, does Peter even fully understand what's going on yet? So in verse 28, it seems like he's put together some pieces of the puzzle. You know, some days have elapsed. He's now in Cornelius' house. He understands at least part of the point. He should not call people unholy or unclean. That's not what God said. And so it's, he's putting together the implications of what God said. But then look at verse 29. This is why I came. So why am I here? <laughs> so he doesn't say like, okay, now listen, I get it. I've come here to preach. Cornelius is say, well, uh, I mean, I saw an angel who told me to send for you, so we're here to hear the message that God has told you to speak to us. And then it seems like another piece of the puzzle comes into play in verse 34. So we'll read 34 through the end of the chapter now. Opening his mouth, 
Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Again, another piece of the puzzle. Verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee. Again, remember how close by Galilee was to Capernaum, or Caesarea rather. After the baptism which John proclaimed, you know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through this, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse water, the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So as Peter preaches, he emphasizes Jesus in the teaching. You know, he doesn't focus on Cornelius's guilt, although he is guilty despite the many good things he's doing. He just preaches the facts. Here's what's happened with Jesus. Here's what's happened to him. Here's what God did with him. And here's what the prophets bear witness. Everybody who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And again, this is presented as just historical data. These things happened. You know about it. Here's the regions where these things happen, and we witness these things. And there may be something significant to the fact that Cornelius was as reliant as apostolic, as reliant on apostolic eyewitnesses as we are. You know, although Cornelius knew of these things, Peter was the one who was an eyewitness, and Peter accurately reporting what he had experienced, what he knew God did. That's just the fact of the situation, and that convicted Cornelius to the point where salvation was imminent. But in verse 42 and 43, with all the parallels of Acts 42, or Acts chapter 2, as the sermon in Acts uh, 2 came, came to its conclusion, Peter concludes with the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead by God, despite being crucified, and that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Look at verse 42. God has appointed Jesus as judge. In that, I think, is the inference of lordship. Jesus is Lord. He is judge. And verse 43, he's also the one whom all the prophets bear witness to, that in him and in him alone is the forgiveness of sins. He is both Lord and he is the Christ. He is the one whom God has appointed, prophesied of, been looking forward to, And exclusively in him are all of these promises of God culminated and held together. And it's while preaching these things that the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and those who are with him. And you notice in verse 46 through 48, uh, Peter sees this as a signal of something. 
that salvation is now available to the Gentiles, and surely we can't refuse the water for these to be baptized at this point, can we? And of course, they can't, so in verse 48, they order them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Something that I think is important to clarify here, um, when I'm studying with people about baptism, this is a very common passage that's brought up as an objection to baptism being necessary for salvation, because if there's one glaring exception, then certainly baptism isn't always necessary, is it? But I think misunderstanding that gets to a general misunderstanding of the book of Acts and what's happening in the book of Acts. This idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out and the speaking in tongues of the Holy Spirit being poured out only happened in two places in history, in the book of Acts. One in Acts 2 and one here. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was poured out, was that saving people directly or signaling the availability and the need for salvation? Was it saving people directly or signaling the availability and the need for salvation? I know it was like three years ago now, two years ago, when I preached on Acts chapter 2 in like a similar series. Um, but in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit being poured out was signaling something. It wasn't directly saving, it wasn't directly doing the work, but it was signaling a reality that was now available. The reality that what God had prophesied he would do in bringing salvation to the nations, this is now available. And you notice in verse 46 through 48, that is exactly how they perceive it. A signal has been sent that tells us something. Salvation is available for the Gentiles in a manner where there is no distinction between what happened to us and now what God is doing for them. This is God's clear, evident testimony that's visible, where now these witnesses can say, this wasn't just us thinking this was the right thing to do. Look at chapter 11, verses 15. This is as Peter is defending the situation to other Jews who take issue with this, not because of just some Jewish prejudice, but you know, again, there's, there's a lawful thing at work here. Anyway, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Notice this. When they heard this, the Jews who took issue with Peter, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. They didn't quiet down and glorify God because Peter was just saying what seemed best to him or what seemed appropriate kind of given the circumstances. It's what God made clear by sending the exact same signal that was sent in Acts chapter 2, signaling that salvation for the Gentiles was available absent of becoming a Jew. And this opens the floodgates for the rest of the book of Acts that focuses heavily on the salvation of the Gentiles, making the Jews jealous. Chapter 11, 1 through 18, is, as I mentioned, I'm not going to read that, but just to summarize again, in verse 1, when Peter and the witnesses with him came back uh, to uh, their brethren, their Jewish brethren, and specifically verse 2, Jerusalem, uh, some Jewish men took issue with them. And again, I don't think it's just a Jewish prejudice, but something religious that they're taking issue with. And they're completely okay. If, if God has clarified this, then it's fine. And again, Peter clarifies not by opinion, but by clear evidence of what God had done.
Uh, so again, verse 11, 1 through 18, Peter explains what God has done. So what are some practical things we can think about with chapter 10 here in the beginning of 11? Um, principles that I think we can take, even if it's not necessarily one-to-one to the situation. I want you to look back at chapter 10, verse 48. They asked Peter to stay some days with them after his conversion. It's not just that Peter preached and left. They were establishing a relationship here. I want you to imagine what the church in Caesarea would have looked like by now. Caesarea is in the Samaritan region. So you imagine in this local church now, you've got Samaritans, you've got Roman centurion, and maybe some people who are with him as it seems like others in his house were converted. So you have Gentiles, and even specifically a Gentile in the Roman army. You have Jews. Philip, the evangelist, was camping in Caesarea, camping, living in Caesarea. Um, we find out later in, in Acts chapter 19 and 20, um, where Philip is still living there years later when Paul makes his last trip to Jerusalem and he's taken into prison. So Philip is there. You have uh, people who are heavily Jewish, who have been Jewish, Samaritans, centurions. This would have been an incredibly diverse church in the region of Caesarea. God is glorified when his church is unified through dramatic diversity rather than through a lack of it. And this is something that I think is helpful to just emphasize again and again and again through time is just how unusually oriented the structure of the church is in terms of its unity through diversity. And I want to put forward with Isaiah chapter 19, this diversity is something impossible without God. There's a way that different people can come to a degree of unity through common work. You know, if you're in a workplace, there's going to be different personalities, people with different backgrounds, and, you know, you can maybe get along well enough as you're working with other people. In school, if you're going to college or high school, whatever, there's going to be very different people there, and you can get along pretty well enough with people in there. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something much more dramatic, and we're talking about a unity that is much more dramatic. Isaiah 19, uh, 23 through 25. This is an unusual prophecy, a captivating prophecy, of what God would do in the church age, in the New Testament time period. Isaiah 19, 23 through 25, and this, this gets to the God's purpose with the kind of diversity he would, he would create. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egypt, Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Egypt, Israel, Assyria. Were those allies of each other? (laughs) Did they even really speak the same language? These were different cultures, different languages, and these nations, most often historically, were not only enemies of each other, but fierce enemies of each other, especially when you think about Assyria and Israel, Assyria and Egypt. And yet what God says he's going to do is bring these different nations who who hate each other, who should have no reason for any base of commonality. And he says, one day, Israel is going to be the third party to Assyria and Egypt. How is that even going to happen? How do you explain that? This is one of those prophecies where either a Jew would have to just not think about it very much, or you read it and you're just like, yeah, I have no idea 
what that means or how that's going to happen. That's the kingdom. And you know, until Acts chapter 10, this prophecy was actually not fully fulfilled. Because it's not that Assyrians would have to become Israelites and then Assyria, my people, or Egypt first become Israelites, then Egypt, my people. No, they are called God's people even as they are in Egypt and in Assyria and maintaining in some sense that identity. So until Acts 10, this prophecy was still left open and unfulfilled, but in the events of Acts 10, these are fulfilled. How does a centurion and Philip the evangelist come to perfect unity with each other? Is it because they're bonding over the centurion's experiences and work environment? Because they have common interests or hobbies? Do you think Peter as a Jew and Cornelius the centurion have similar hobbies at all? And I'm not saying those are, those are bad things to bond on, but God is glorified more greatly when we form relationships that are not based in things of the flesh, but rather the things of the spirit. This church of Caesarea was going to be united through the spirit, not through the flesh. And by the way, I realize there's Spanish on the board. Miguel's not here. I I expected Miguel to be here. So you just have to kind of, obviously you've been ignoring Spanish the whole time. Anyway, uh, concentrated, concentrated consideration on God's word is the key to rooted personal application. How often does God teach this way? And not just in Jesus, the Old Testament, the prophets, images like Isaiah 19, are not just easy answers. Peter, not, that, not just that he had to think, God intended, he intentionally communicated to Peter in a way that demanded concentrated consideration of what it was he was saying, what it was he was meaning. As we concentrate on things that God says, that's when we really develop rooted, personal applications. There is a great danger, and I think this is something that isn't just an internet age thing. This is just a human problem. There's a great danger in the desire for easy answers. Just tell me what this means right now. Or just show me the commentary that tells us what this means. Or just, what's the application? Tell me what this means for me. There's a great danger in always looking for the easy answer or the spoon-fed application. Jesus didn't micromanage everybody's day-to-day application of his teaching. He left it up to them. They had to care enough and think enough to make those applications, in a sense, with their own heart, with their own thinking. So again, concentrated consideration is really the key to making properly rooted personal applications. Just to illustrate this really simply, do you remember how to solve a problem or even care about the solution more if you have a problem and someone else fixes it for you and just solves it for you? Or if they help you through the process and you discover the solution on your own? Even if someone helps you, maybe guides your way through it, as you ask questions, they answer you, you're going to remember a solution a lot more and learn a lot better if you're helped through the process rather than just given the answer immediately out, right? And I want to bring attention to some specific things that Jesus says that relate to this next point, that God pushes our boundaries through his teaching to change and expand our relationships, Matthew 5, 39 through 41. You don't need to turn there as I'll just be kind of trying to quote them. But Matthew 5, 39, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Maybe you're different, but I've never been slapped on my right cheek before. Maybe I got slapped so hard that I just can't remember, but I don't think I've ever been slapped on the right cheek before. So does that mean that like, well, a teaching doesn't mean anything to me? Or how about this? Matthew 5, 40. If anyone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat also. 
No one's sued me before. I've never been taken to court, especially for my shirt. That teaching must not apply to me either. If anyone presses you one mile, go with them too. No one has ever pressed me to go a mile with them. I, I've maybe run with people before, but there's never this like duty where I've got to carry something for whatever. So that must not apply to me either. Or is it that Jesus is, again, teaching through these illustrations so that as I carry that teaching with me, as Peter did with the vision, rooted personal applications become clear as I interact with people. And they wrong me and I feel offended and I remember, mm, Jesus told me, turn the other cheek. Or when somebody does something and they want something from me that I don't want to give them and I remember, Jesus told me if they want my shirt, give them my cloak also. Or if somebody asks me to do something for them and I remember, I need to not just feel resentful that I've been asked to do this unexpectedly, I should be willing to do that and then follow up and do more for them. It's when you carry the teaching with you and you remember it in the context of further interaction that rooted personal applications become clear. And another way this is important is God unifying Jew and Gentile together. God pushes our boundaries through this teaching. Do you imagine if social media was a thing in Jesus' day that somebody would like share on Facebook you know, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Do you think people would share that in mass and like applaud it and say, amen, amen, yeah, we ought to turn the other cheek. Or yeah, if someone wants to sue you, let them have even more from you. Absolutely, amen. Look, boundaries are important. And there's a wisdom in boundaries. But I just want to put this in your mind that we may sometimes be too quick to defend ourselves and place boundaries where Jesus and his teaching would break them down. And if that's my mentality, here's the reality. Jesus and his teaching is not just trying to make me miserable. Just like with Peter changing his convictions on a very precious thing that to him, he'd always been following it. But that's what it would take to reach more people and expand his relationships. If we don't do what Jesus says when it's hard, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, et cetera, et cetera. If we don't pay attention to those things, concentrate on those things, make rooted personal applications, there are interactions we're never going to have. There's people we'll never meet. There's people we'll never have the patience to interact with or pay attention to. There's going to be opportunities for the gospel we're never going to have them. And we'll never notice because we're not being inconvenienced. You know, it's people we'll never notice. It's situations we'll never notice. Just like God was pushing Peter, notice this person that you would never otherwise have table fellowship with. Jesus' hardest instructions that we just tend to look at the weight of responsibility involved, God wants us to see that's what it takes to reach people. That's what it takes to love people. You want to be a light to the world, this is what that means. May God help us apply his teaching in those kind of ways and to let him, even at times, make us unsafe where we can be taken advantage of for his glory. That's the lesson for this morning. I hope that these things have been helpful, convicting, and encouraging. There's so much richness in these historical accounts that are easy to just read over it and see it only as matter of fact, when in reality, it is so much more than that. If you're here this morning and there is anything that you see that you have need of spiritually. We always reserve this time at the end of our assembly to bring anything forward in that regard as we stand and sing an invitation song.